Good morning. Um, we will be reading from Luke 10, 25 through 37. And behold, a lawyer stood up to put him to the test, saying, Teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? He said to him, What is written in the law? How do you read it? And he answered, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength and with all your mind and your neighbor as yourself. And he said to him, You have answered correctly. Do this and you will live. But he, desiring to justify himself, said to Jesus, And who is my neighbor? Jesus replied, A man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho, and he fell among robbers who stripped him and beat him and departed, leaving him half dead. Now by chance a priest was going down that road, and when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. So likewise a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him, passed by on the other side. But a Samaritan, as he journeyed, came to where he was, and when he saw him, he had compassion. He went to him and bound up his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. Then he set him on his own animal and brought him to an inn and took care of him. And the next day he took out two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper, saying, Take care of him, and whatever more you spend, I will repay you when I come back. Which of these three do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell among the robbers? He said, The one who showed him mercy. And Jesus said to him, You go and do likewise. Thank you, Christy. Well, we are in week four of the Restore series. So week one, um, heart focused inward on our need uh, to be restored as individuals. In week two, we'll share with us about being restored by abiding in Christ. And that result of abiding in Christ is loving each other and unity within the church. And last week, Jeff Shipman uh, was visiting and he focused on that unity within the church and then what to do when that unity needs to be restored. And today we're going to talk about focusing on taking that love and that uh, restorative um, nature of Jesus to the world. So we just wrapped up about a month ago the, uh, our sermon series in John, which is a gospel that is rich in theology. It's just a very deep, uh, probably the, the richest uh, of the four gospels of just really getting into some deep theology. And here at Midlands, over the years, we've done sermon series on and men's and women's Bible studies on some of uh, Paul's epistles. We've done some on the letters of James and John. And studying through books of the Bible like that that are just really uh, deep in theological wisdom and teaching for us is, is, is extremely important. But let's also remember the value of a good story and what the Lord can teach us through just simple stories throughout Scripture. Uh, when I was in seminary, I took an, a course, and it was an elective, and the name of the course was Chronological Bible Storying. It's exactly what the title says. So what that course was about was telling Bible stories in chronological order, beginning with the creation story, and usually going through either um, Jesus' resurrection or, or through the story of His ascension to heaven. So... Um, if you take a look at Scripture and start counting the individual stories that are in Scripture, there's over 600 individual stories that all come together to tell us the gospel story of God's love 
for us. So uh, right after I took that class, I was at a South Carolina Baptist Convention event here in town, um, and the, the host pastor that we were at a church, and the host pastor heard me talking. I had just finished this class, and uh, it was a one-week intensive, like, J-term, uh, like CIU does, class, and so 40 hours in one week, and there was some pre and post work. So I was telling somebody about the class, and he heard me talking, and he he was kind of picking at me, giving me a hard time, because he was a graduate of the same seminary where I took this class. And uh, he's like, man, he's like, that seminary's gone downhill. They're teaching you how to tell stories instead of doing these deep, serious theological courses. And uh, I respectfully disagreed with him. Um, it's actually one of the more practical courses I took in seminary. Um, the course was geared towards sharing the gospel in cultures that have an oral tradition um, and or in areas where there's a low literacy rate. Um, you know, if you, you can give somebody a Bible, um, even in their language, but if they can't read, it's, it's not doing a lot of good. Uh, I was in Kenya one time and I uh, was in a village. We came into this village and the senior man there, because there it, there's a lot of respect for, um, I actually wish I had more gray hair because there's respect for gray-haired folks. And so the oldest man in the village, he came out and he had this massive Bible. It had to have been a study Bible and, or else big letters because it was massive. And he's holding it up and he made the entire village come and listen to us um, share the gospel. Someone had given him that Bible 20 years earlier and he had it in a prominent place in his hut, displayed as the leader of that village, this Bible. It was in English. Nobody could read it. So it was, it was still the Bible, but the stories and the story of Jesus were not being shared. So we were able to share with them stories and, and give them a way to share the gospel with each other. Now, I said there was over 600 and something individual stories don't worry, the chronological Bible story isn't starting with the first one and ending with the 600 and something one. You take about 15 or 20 that really point to Jesus and you share those. And you can share the entire gospel in a relatively short uh, period of time. And even though the class is geared toward uh, people that are more of an oral society, it actually works really well anywhere. I've actually used it. You've heard me talk about the Delta Motel uh, Bible study over here on Highway 1. Uh, I was not part of this, but I heard about a Bible study at the Savannah River site. And if you're uh, of a certain age and from South Carolina, it's the bomb plant. Like you don't call it the Savannah River site. But nobody calls it that anymore uh, if you're over the, or under the age of 40. But um, there was a group of ladies that attended church in Aiken. And their husbands were all engineers and did not care to go to church. And these very intellectual guys and wanted to have deep discussions, but somehow or another, one of the pastors, their pastor actually got the men to come together for just uh, hanging out, men's time, and he would start telling them stories. But he was doing chronological Bible storying. And it's hard to argue with a story when you're just sharing a story. And so it actually, uh, a number of men in that group actually became believers not through deep theological study, which is important, but through listening and asking questions about stories. 
So today is going to be a little different probably than what we're normally used to at Midlands. Um, We're going to talk about a story, and it's a pretty famous story, and it's one that we've heard. It's probably the most, one of the most well-known parables that Jesus told. It's so well-known that even if you know nothing of Jesus and know nothing of this story, the term the Good Samaritan is in our lexicon. Like People know what that means, um, even if they have no idea where it came from. So it's pretty, um, pretty well known. But when you think about it, that class, you know, was four folks with, that had a more uh, oral tradition and how they communicated. But all of us um, hear and share stories orally. Um, you know, we might like to read stories in books or we might watch stories on TV shows or movies or however you watch things now. But we also have our own personal Stories, And we share our family stories and our personal stories just by talking to each other. Um, growing up, my grandparents and my parents and my aunts and uncles, and um, they did not hand me a Williamson or Gunter. Gunter's my mom's maiden name. They didn't hand me a book and said, all right, here's all the stories of your family. <laughs> Read this and you'll be prepared to come to the next reunion. That's, that's not what they did. They shared family stories. And so that's how I learned about what my parents were like when they were little and what my grandparents went through during the Great Depression. And beyond that, my, everybody that my grandparents, and it, when I was a little, little boy, three of my great-grandparents were still alive. So I was hearing stories from the 1800s that were not written down, but they were passed along. So this, this telling of stories is an important way to share uh, the gospel, share what is really important to us. Um, And as Christians, we actually have our own stories, like how you became a believer. And unless you've been asked to give your testimony and you actually jotted down some notes, like it's probably not written down, but it's your story. And nobody else can tell that story except you. So we need to remember that a good story can be very, very valuable Um, a very valuable way to share something important with somebody else. And we know this because Jesus frequently taught using stories to illustrate his point. And those stories are called parables in Scripture. If you look at Matthew in chapter 13, verses 34 and 35, Jesus is, is actually teaching in parables through that whole section of Matthew. And here's what it says. All these things Jesus said to the crowds in parables. Indeed, he said nothing to them without a parable. This was to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet. And then it quotes Psalm 78, verse 2. It says, I will open my mouth in parables. I will utter what has been hidden since the foundation of the world. So what is a parable? Simple definition. A parable is a simple story about something that would be familiar to the hearer of the parable used to teach a spiritual, or we would call today, a biblical truth. So it is a story that would seem familiar to the person hearing it, but they would understand what is being taught unless, you know, there are some parables where Jesus had to explain to the disciples what the parable meant because it wasn't meant for everyone. So depending on who you talk to, depending on what what scholarly biblical book you read, uh, let's just say Jesus used at least 34 different parables in his ministry. 
There are some that say more. Uh, I actually think more, but let's just say 34. So 34 in a three-year period, I think it's pretty obvious that Jesus believed that was a good way to get his point across, to help people understand. And based on what John, what we studied at the end of John, all the things that aren't written down about Jesus, there were probably other parables that were not uh, written down that we don't know about. Um, so Jesus understood the value of a good story. So today's scripture passage that uh, Christy just read is actually in, it's a story within another story that's happening. So Jesus tells this story in response to what is actually going on. So let's take a look at that. So in verse 25, so there's a crowd there. And Jesus, this is right after um, the 72 have been sent out and they just came back. And so Jesus is there and there's a crowd around him as was uh, typical. And in verse 25, it says, And behold, a lawyer stood up to put him to the test, saying, Teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? Now, I don't want to read too much into that verse, um, but it sounds like the lawyer is challenging Jesus here. He's trying to put Jesus on the spot to answer his question. Or, I mean, he could sincerely be wanting to know, wanting an answer, because Jesus was a teacher. He was a called rabbi. He was someone that, at this point, people were listening to and respecting. So maybe he was just simply asking, what, what must I do? So Jesus responded to this question with a counter question that directs that lawyer, and he's not a lawyer in the way that we think of lawyers today, a lawyer of that time, when they, were, when they were described as a lawyer, was an expert in the law, in what we call the Torah, so in biblical law. So Jesus says, well, he says to him in verse 26, what is written in the law? How do you read it? So he's asking, the guy's asking him a question, and Jesus is coming right back with another question saying, hey, he's really saying, you know, What's it, what's it say? You're an expert at this. What does it say? How do you read it? How do you interpret the law? So the man answered and he says in verse 27, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength and with all your mind and your neighbor as yourself. So the guy responds correctly. He quotes the law. He quotes the first part is straight out of Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 5, and then Leviticus 19, verse 18 is the additional love your neighbor as yourself. So Jesus responds to him and he says in verse 28, you've answered correctly, do this and you will live. Jesus in effect said, all right, you know the answer. So all you need to do is practice what you preach. You're a lawyer, you know the law, you just answered correctly. The question that you had, go do it. Go do what you told me the law says. Now, that should have been the end of it. Um, but the lawyer, um, who had just had to answer his own question in front of all these people, wants to know, who is his neighbor? And by the nature of his question, he's implying that there's somebody that's not his neighbor. So he is trying to figure out, you know, who is the neighbor that he needs to love. Now, before we're too hard on this lawyer here, um, have you ever in your life tried to figure out the minimum requirements that you needed to do to complete a task or a job, okay? 
Let me uh, give you a Randy example that I am not proud of sharing this, but it gets the point across. So I was uh, to my last exam of my last week of college at Clemson. I was burned out. I was tired. I had one class to go to graduate. Like This was it. This was the last class. And so um, I actually wanted to know, like, what do, I, what do I have to make on this test to be able to graduate? That's all I cared about at that point. And uh, like a lot of you, uh, when you're in your major, like technically D is a passing grade, but if it's in your major, you had to make at least a C. So actually, I'm an engineer, so I did the math, okay? And I figured out that I had to make an eight. An eight. I had a pretty good grade in this class, and I will confess, like, I, if I made an eight, I would, my grade would drop down to a C, and I would graduate um, and be done with that. Uh, and it crossed my mind of just getting in there and just winging it, because surely I could make an eight. Uh, but I didn't want to push it. I didn't want to risk it. So what I did is I actually, I didn't just study enough to get by. I studied hard. I made a good grade on the test. Um, and I, I made a good grade in the class, and I graduated. So, uh, but it crossed my mind. Like, what, what, what can I get away with? Um, and it isn't just me. I actually have good company. If you look in Matthew chapter 18, Peter, J Jesus has just talked about forgiving others. And Peter says to Jesus, uh, how many times do I have to forgive my brother? Is seven enough? And he was probably taken aback by Jesus' response because Jesus replied, do not, I do not say to you seven times, but 70 times seven. Now, does anybody here think that the number 491 passed through Peter's mind? Because it would have passed through mine. All right. All right, I'm going to keep track of this. And when I get to 491, that's it. No more forgiving. But that's not what Jesus was saying. He was doing this number of you don't quit. You just keep forgiving. So like me and like Peter, this lawyer was trying to find out where the low bar was set. He wanted to know, all right, who do I really have to love in order to fulfill this commandment? So he says um, in verse 29, desiring to justify himself, said to Jesus, who is my neighbor? And this is where we get to the story within the story. Jesus replied to the lawyer's question with a parable. As we read through this parable, let's remember it's a simple story that Jesus was using to make his point. In the parable of the Good Samaritan, we need to remember this is a fictional story that Jesus is using to make his point and to clearly answer the lawyer's question. We don't need to make too many assumptions about the characters in the story. The parable is meant to just plainly and simply illustrate the point Jesus wants his audience, including the lawyer and those around him and us today to understand. So Jesus replies with the story. In verse 30, Jesus said, a man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho and he fell among robbers who stripped him and beat him and departed, leaving him half dead. Now, I just said, let's not make too many assumptions about this because it's a fictional story. But here's one thing I think we can um, assume is because Jesus is speaking to a crowd of Jews. He's speaking to a Jewish lawyer. 
an expert in the law. And he doesn't identify the man. Where he is is between Jerusalem and Jericho. So that would indicate that he is probably Jewish. And he does not indicate that he is anything else. So I think we can assume in the context of this parable that this guy was a Jew. So he's heading down this road. He gets attacked. He gets beaten, stripped, robbed, and left half dead. So he's laying in the ditch, beaten, helpless. Verse 31. Now by chance a priest was going down that road, and when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. Now Jesus doesn't tell us in the story straight up, like, why did this guy pass by on the other side? And those of you that have been in Bible college or in seminary know that there are folks that love to debate stuff. Scholars love to debate stuff. And so some people say, well, you know, the priest thought maybe he was dead, so he, could, they couldn't, he couldn't touch him because then that would make him unclean and he couldn't perform his duties, so he passed on the other side. And then there are some that say, well, he saw this guy had been beaten and robbed, and maybe he was afraid that the robbers were still around, so he was going to try to get out of there. Um, remember, this is a parable. So let's don't overthink it. With the limited information that Jesus gives us in this parable, in this story, the likely conclusion is that this religious leader didn't want to help the man for whatever reason. He chose to pass him by as far away as he could. Verse 32, so likewise a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him, passed by on the other side. Identical response to the priest. So, Real quickly, let's talk about what's the difference between a priest and a Levite. So all priests were Levites, but not all Levites were priests. Like all thumbs are fingers, but not all fingers are thumbs. Does that make sense? Okay. So even though this Levite was not a priest, he was from that priestly tribe. There are other duties that a, that a Levite could do without rising to that level of a priest, Levites assisted the priest in the worship uh, in the Jewish temple. So what we do know from this, the priest and the Levite, is that both these guys were professional ministers. But yet both of them left that half-dead man lying on the side of the road and didn't help him. So um, like any good story, good stories have a good plot twist. Okay, so here we are. We're to the, the, the plot twist of this parable that Jesus is telling them. So the next person that comes along was a Samaritan. Let's talk about Samaritans for a little bit, okay? Uh, in this context, for sure. Um, why did Jesus use a Samaritan as the good guy in this story? Um, and I, he could have used a Roman soldier. He could have used someone else that the Jews like, really had an issue with, but he chose to use a Samaritan. And I actually thought about trying to relate it to something current, you know, that we could understand and, you know, with the things that are going on between Israel and, and Hamas now. But I really think that that kind of misses the point of, of what Jesus is saying here, um, especially what he's, who he's talking to. So why Samaritan? Let's take a look at the history a little bit real quick. So bear with me. Uh, a lot of history here, but it's going to help us understand. Samaritans were native 
Natives or inhabitants of Samaria. Samaria was a distinct territory or region in Palestine. Does that word Palestine or Palestinians remind you of anything in current events? So until the rise of the Assyrians in the ancient Near East, Samaria was occupied by the tribes of Ephraim and by the western portion of the tribe of Manasseh, so Israelites. There are a lot of sites in Samaria that hold or held important places in Israelite history now, but at that time as well. Uh, Mount Gerizim and Mount Ebal were the scenes of the covenant renewal ceremony during Joshua's time. So this, these were important places in Samaria. Shechem was briefly the capital of the northern kingdom of Israel under Jeroboam I. The city of Samaria was later built, and it became the new capital of Israel. But that city fell to the Assyrians in 722-721 BC, and most of the leading citizens, most of the leading citizens of Israel were deported to places in Syria, Assyria, and Babylonia. And then Sargon of Assyria, and I love that name because it sounds like a bad guy in Lord of the Rings. So Sargon of Assyria placed the replaced the deported Israelites with foreign colonists. And this story is in 2 Kings chapter 17. These newcomers intermarried with the Israelites who remained. So the Samaritans, the result of these marriages, they worshiped the God of Israel, but they also continued to worship the pagan gods from these foreign lands where the folks had come from. And so according to the Israelites, according to the Jews, the Samaritans were a mixed race contaminated by foreign blood and false worship. And we learn from the Jewish historian Josephus that the Samaritans were also opportunists. When things were going well for the Jews, the Samaritans said, yeah, we're Jewish. They would claim that bloodline. But when things were not going so well for the Jews, they're like, oh yeah, we're uh, descendants of the Assyrians. So they kind of took advantage of their split lineage. So that caused a lot of bad blood. At one point after the Babylonian captivity, the Samaritans offered to help Zerubbabel rebuild the temple. And when they were not allowed to do that, they actually tried to prevent the Jews from finishing the project. And it grew even worse when Ezra pressured all the Israelite men who married foreigners during that time of captivity to divorce their pagan wives. And then finally, the final break between the Jews and the Samaritans that makes this such a shocking person to be the good guy, occurred when the Samaritans built a rival temple on Mount um, Jerizim, claiming it had not it and not the temple in Jerusalem was Bethel, the house of God. So blasphemy to the Jews because their house of God was in Jerusalem. The Samaritans traced their beginnings back to Eli, they believed that their religion was distinctive and it was based on the Torah, the first five books of what we call the Old Testament. They did not take any other Hebrew writings as authoritative. They only focused on the first five. And you can see a little hint of this if you read the story in John that we studied a while back of Jesus and the woman at the well, because she was a Samaritan. So we call this guy the Good Samaritan, But to this lawyer and to the other Jews that were listening to Jesus, there was no such thing as a good Samaritan. 
John chapter 4 verse 9 says the Jews had no dealings with the Samaritans. This wasn't just somebody that they didn't like that much. They wanted anything to do with each other. So based on what we know about this relationship or lack thereof between the Jews and the Samaritans, it's safe to say that a Samaritan would have been the last person that a Jew would consider to be their neighbor. Which makes it a good fit for why Jesus chose to make the good guy in this story a Samaritan. Verse 33, But a Samaritan, as he journeyed, came to where he was, and when he saw him, he had compassion. Now, a quick note on that word compassion. It's a compound word. Passion means suffer, and come means with. So compassion means to suffer with. In fact, the, the Latin translation of that word means co-suffering. So if you have compassion on somebody, it's much more than feeling bad for them. The southern phrase, bless their hearts, is not compassionate because you're not getting engaged and involved. You're not investing in it at all. Compassion comes with a cost. Verse 34 and 35. He went to him, he bound up his wounds, pouring on oil and wine, and then he set him on his own animal and brought him to an inn and took care of him. And the next day he took out two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper, saying, take care of him. And whatever you spend, I will repay you when I come back. So the Samaritan, he gets invested. He treats the man's wounds with his own stuff. He puts that man on his own animal. We don't know if he, in the story, he was supposedly walking or riding. We don't know. But he puts the man on his animal. He goes to the inn. He takes care of him. Until the next day, he gives, the, he pays the innkeeper for up to that point. And then he basically gives the innkeeper a blank check. Take care of this guy. And I'm coming back. And whatever it costs, I will repay you for that. So he is invested. His compassion is real. So the Samaritan cared for the guy. He took care of his wounds. He took care of him. He got him to a safe place. The guy was robbed, so he probably needed clothing. He needed food. He needed whatever. And he took care of that. He was willing to take action, to love his neighbor. So the question is this. Which of these three men do we want to emulate? Well, I think we could all agree which one we would like to be like. Now, have you ever behaved like the other two guys? And I'll leave it up to you to say which one you want to be like and which one maybe we have all been like from time to time where we have not loved our neighbor. So with this parable complete, Jesus now responds to the lawyer's second question with a question of his own. He says, which of these three do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell among the robbers? Now let's look at that response that the lawyer said. And again, it's a parable. At this part, the parable's over, and it's a story that actually happened. Jesus is interacting with this lawyer. I don't want to read too much into and speculate too much into what the lawyer's response was, but I just have always found it interesting because of the relationship between Jews and Samaritans. 
he, he didn't say the Samaritan in response to Jesus's question. And was it because he couldn't even bring himself to say that word because the hate was so strong between the Jews and the Samaritans? That's just a randy thought. That's not biblical. I don't know. But he didn't say the Samaritan. I do know this. This story is inspired scripture. So whatever the reason for that lawyer responding that way, God is reminding us in verse 34 that our neighbor can't be defined by race, by gender, by nationality, by religious beliefs, by political allegiance, or anything else. We are commanded to love our neighbor as ourself. So the man replied in verse 37, the one who showed him mercy. And Jesus said, you go and do likewise. Jesus is making the point that everyone is our neighbor and we are to love them the same way that Jesus loves us. That's the point of this story. He took the most unlikely person to this Jewish audience and this Jewish lawyer and made that person the one that was actually the good neighbor. What this is telling us is, man, we need to love each other. Even when we don't agree on things, even when there is bad blood, literally like in their case, whatever the situation, that's not an excuse for us not to love each other. And as Christians, if we don't love others, then why would the world want anything to do with what we claim to believe if we're not showing that love for each other and that love for the world around us? At the end of our time every Sunday, we do communion. And communion is a really good reminder for us that loving some, this is what loving someone unconditionally looks like. Romans 5, 8 reads, but God showed his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. So as we take communion, it is a good reminder. Are we loving each other? Are we loving each other unconditionally the way that Jesus loves us? We've shared it before. I even um, said it last week. This is, this is a meal for believers. So if you trust in Jesus as your Savior and Lord, then this is a meal for you. If you're still trying to figure out what Jesus means to you, then we ask that you don't participate. Not that we would not love to talk to you more about this love that Jesus has for you, but this is a time for us to come together as a body of believers, as a family, and share this meal together. So let me lead us in prayer. Father, we thank you so much. Thank you for loving us, Lord. We thank you for um, teaching us um, through deep theology and scripture, Father, but also through simple stories that share your truth very well. Father, I pray that if there's anyone in our life that we have hard feelings against or disagree with and it's caused a, a division, Father, I pray that we will seek your forgiveness for ourselves first. But, Father, that we will love each other 
We will love each other the way that you have shown us in this story, unconditionally, no matter what the division was, there was love and compassion. And I pray that we will have compassion for our fellow brothers and sisters and for the lost world that we live in. Father, we pray these things in the name of Jesus. Amen.